Hello, and welcome to another episode of Antiquity, a hella average history lesson. And today, we're not going to talk about video games. What? Yes, instead, we're going to go way back to a dark time. It was an age of darkness. It was a world of fear. It was an age before video games. Yes, today we're going to talk about the game that was the precursor to video games, and much like today, had its own struggle for legitimacy, and proving that it was more than just a game. I'm referring, of course, to pinball. The beginnings of pinball can be traced back to Bagatelle, a form of billiards in which players use cues to shoot balls up a sloped table. The goal was to get the balls into one of nine cups placed along the face of the table. Abraham Lincoln was said to have played Bagatelle, making him the first ever gamer president. The invention that paved the way for today's video game and amusement industry was a game called Baffle Ball. To learn about Baffle Ball and its evolution into what we would today know as pinball, we need to travel back to the 1930s, where we meet its creator, David Gottlieb. David was a short, stocky man with a head full of brown hair and an ever-present cigar in his mouth. Think of him like a 1930s George Costanza with a toupee chomping down on a Cuban. David was a showman and an inventor who made a living by taking carnival games to oil field workers in the Midwest. Gottlieb understood the delicate dance of skill and luck that made games fun and had a knack for fine-tuning his games to make them more enjoyable. In 1931, Gottlieb invented Baffle Ball. Baffle Ball used no electricity and hardly resembled the pinball we know today. Made out of a countertop table, the only moving part was a plunger players used to launch a ball onto a 7 degree slope studded with pins circling 8 holes or scoring pockets, as Gottlieb referred to them. Each pocket had a certain point value assigned to it, and for a mere penny, players could launch 7 balls. Baffle Ball had no bumpers, flippers, or scoring devices of any kind, so players had to keep score in their head. Once a ball was launched, players could control the ball movement by nudging the entire cabinet, a technique that would later go on to become known as tilting. At first, Baffle Ball was a modern success, but within months its popularity grew and it became a modern day craze. At its peak, Gottlieb had shipped 400 Baffle Ball cabinets. Being his creator, Gottlieb was the first to mass produce Baffle Ball cabinets and created such high-end tables that he became known as the Henry Ford of Baffle Ball. His competitors could not compete. Imitators popped up immediately, more or less. I mean, everybody got involved in the business. And like I said, there were a lot of people building them in their garages. Gottlieb's machines were a little more expensive. I think it was $16.50 for the machine, and that was a dollar to a dollar fifty more than the competitors. But my grandfather used a better quality of walnut. I think the pins were a quality metal. He wanted it to be the Cadillac of pinball machines. Michael Gottlieb, grandson of David Gottlieb. Williams was a Harvard-educated engineer who brought a deep understanding of mechanical workings to the industry. He started by selling other companies' amusements, but soon discovered that by refurbishing used pinball games and giving them their own custom playfields, it was much cheaper than buying them new. In 1932, Williams increased the difficulty of pinball by limiting the amount of tilting the player could use. He designed a contraption with a metal ball on a pedestal and incorporated it into his tables. If the player nudged the machine too much, the ball would fall off the pedestal, ending the game. He originally called this device Stool Pigeon, but changed it to Tilt after a customer complained that the table was tilted. The ball and pedestal device was later refined to a pendulum device that is still used today in modern pinball cabinets. 
1933, Williams created the first electric pinball machine called Contact, which referred to the electrically powered scoring pockets he called Contacts, which would knock the ball back into the playing field to continue scoring points. Previous to Contact, the skill for the player was to send the ball up on the playfield, have it roll around, and hope that its aim was such that the ball would somehow magically weave its way around through the pins that were nailed into the playfield. With a contact hole, you still needed to have some precision to get the ball into the cup, but getting the ball into the cup gave you something back. There was a sound, there was motion. Part of the fascination people have with pinball comes from opportunities where the game takes over and does things. Roger C. Sharp, author of Pinball. Although he was well aware of the advancements Williams was making, Gottlieb was more worried of a different development, payouts. Slot machine makers had begun making their own amusements, they called payouts, which combined both pinball and gambling. Gottfield feared these machines would ruin the pinball industry. Unfortunately, all of this was taking place during the crime-riddled 1930s, and the government was cracking down on gambling parlors and machines which were associated with organized crime. Yes, there was a certain amount of skill involved, but basically the law looked at it as a gambling device. Payouts started out legally in many states and eventually ended up being operated mostly illegally in places where the police would look the other way, such as New Orleans. They were nickel games, by the way. They paid off in nickels, so it was a little gamble, but nevertheless, it was gambling. Eddie Adlam, publisher, Replay Magazine. Gottlieb's fears were soon realized when the government saw an inextricable link between pinball and gambling. State laws outlawed payout games, and pinball was unfortunately included in the decision. This was all thanks to the mayor of New York, Fiorello Lagardia. Lagardia spent six years in the courts trying to outlaw pinball before finally succeeding. To celebrate, Lagardia seized pinball games from around the city before famously smashing several of them with a sledgehammer at a press conference. The event was shown on newsreels around the country. There was a gaming-gambling connection to the coin-operated amusement business. There was a photograph I remember very clearly, Fiorella Lagardia, the mayor of New York City, by the waterside, breaking up all these games of chances and throwing them into the sea to dispose of them. Today, we have an even greater problem with the environmentalists, Joel Hochberg, President, Rare, and Coinet. Within three weeks, New York had confiscated and destroyed 3,000 pinball machines. The leftover metal from machines was donated to the U.S. military to help fight the Nazis in World War II. Over 7,000 pounds of scrap metal, including 3,000 pounds of metal balls, were donated. That's a lot of balls. New York's ban on pinball would unfortunately remain in place for 35 years. Gottlieb led a crusade to legitimize pinball by proving the games had more to do with skill than luck. In 1947, one of Gottlieb's engineers named Harry Mabs created six spring-powered levers that would propel the ball back into play before going out of bounds. Gottlieb named these levers flipper bumpers and implemented them into his Humpty Dumpty pinball cabinet. These fundamentally changed the game with pinball and were the proof he needed to show that pinball was a game of skill rather than luck. It, the introduction of the flipper, not only changed the basic landscape of the games themselves, but specifically to the player, it really changed how they interacted with the games. It was a totally different entertainment form than it had ever been. More important, it was a remarkable change for the game designer and developers. What had been the prescribed way of doing game development for the previous decade had to be altered dramatically. No longer was it a situation of a person passively interacting with the game. Now, there was true influence and greater control from the standpoint of the player. Roger C. Sharp. This innovation became Pinball's savior 
as other manufacturers implemented them into their tables. Though Mabs created the flipper bumpers, Stephen Kordek, an engineer from a company called Genko, was the first to effectively implement them into the game by removing four of the flippers, the two at the top and the two in the middle, leaving only the two on the bottom. I worked for a small company and I was always told to save money, and there was no way in the world I was going to use six flippers. Steve Kordek, former pinball designer, Genko. In January of 1948, Kordek's two-flipper design was demonstrated at a trade show, where it became a factory standard ever since. With the introduction of flippers and free game rewards for higher scores, Gottlieb had proof positive that pinball machines were games of skill, and as such, legislators eased the restrictions on pinball machines, with New York continuing its ban into the 70s. And that, my fellow hags, was the story of how pinball, much like video games, fight for legitimacy in a world that didn't want to recognize it. I hope you enjoyed this Hella Average History lesson, and as always, please leave comments and let me know what you'd like to hear in the future. And as always, stay Hella Average.